Hey, Rarecast listeners, the rare disease community is full of people who inspire us through innovation, compassion, and a relentless spirit to affect positive change. Global Genes is now accepting nominations for the 2019 Rare Champion of Hope Awards. Help us identify individuals, organizations, and collaborations in your community that have made an impact in advocacy, treatment, or technology. Please help us identify people who deserve recognition for the exceptional work they do. To learn more or submit a nomination, go to globalgenes.org forward slash rare champions. That's globalgenes.org forward slash rare champions. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Rett syndrome is a genetic disorder that mostly affects girls and is often misdiagnosed as autism, cerebral palsy, or nonspecific developmental delay. A study recently published in the journal Neurology reports encouraging results from a mid-stage clinical trial for an experimental therapy to treat the condition. The patient organization RettSyndrome.org played a key role in identifying the potential application of the drug in Rett syndrome and provided early funding. We spoke to Steve Kaminsky, chief science officer of RettSyndrome.org, about the drug, the role his organization has played in its development, and how it may one day change the landscape for patients with the condition. Steve, thanks for joining us. Yes, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, hopefully uh, we can uh, uncover some of the uh, nuances of Rett syndrome for all the listeners. Well, we're going to talk about Rett syndrome, an experimental therapy that is advancing with encouraging clinical results, and the role that your organization, the RettSyndrome.org, has played in advancing this therapy. For listeners not familiar with Rett syndrome, what is it, how does it progress, and What's the prognosis today for someone with the condition? Uh, Rett syndrome is a single gene disorder. Um, the gene is a gene called NECP2. It's found on the X chromosome. So an individual who has a mutation in NECP2, uh, both boys and girls can have them, but the medical presentation for boys is much different from that, from that, in the, uh, from the medical presentation in girls. And that's basically because boys only have one X chromosome while girls have two X chromosomes. So the, the condition is, um, more severe in boys, uh, sometimes leading to, uh, death, uh, prior to being born or death shortly after being born or uh, death in the, in the first few years of life. But there are a number of boys who've, who've proceeded and grown uh, uh, quite a bit older than that. Girls, on the other hand, it's a very different condition. The girls are born and they, they appear quite normal. They have a, a, um, an okay first 
year of development. Sometimes in that first year, parents know something's not quite right. Uh, pediatricians oftentimes will say, oh, this is just a, you know, uh, a delayed development. Don't worry, they'll catch up. Uh, but in fact, the parents probably usually have it right and that something's wrong. And at some point in time, um, there's usually some kind of genetic consult done. And at that point, they look at essentially muta mutations and a girl is, is essentially found to have a mutation in MECP2. But that's not how the diagnosis is made. The diagnosis is not a genetic diagnosis. It's actually a clinical diagnosis. And the clinicians are looking at a number of different things. Um, and uh, regression is probably the strongest indicator. And that is a child who's developed a certain number of abilities actually starts to lose those abilities. And it's that that kicks off really the investigation into what's causing that. So in girls, it's oftentimes not diagnosed until they're on the order of 18 months to two years of age, maybe a little earlier. Um, but then it is essentially um, a disorder that's going to change the life of everybody around that girl. Um, the girls um, can live to be in their 50s, and some have actually uh, lived to be women of their 60s. Uh, but these um, girls and women actually de uh, depend on 24-7 care. They oftentimes um, have uh, an inability to use their hands. There's a hand stereopathy. Um, they have uh, almost very few of the girls have the ability to speak. And um, seizures can be prevalent. Uh, GI tract problems can be prevalent. Many of them lose the ability to walk and are bound to a wheelchair. So this is a devastating disorder. Uh, and the fact that they cannot communicate um, puts them into a spectrum traditionally of severe mental retardation. But in fact, these girls are locked in in many ways, and it's been shown that they they are intelligent. And uh, the fact is they just don't have essentially a portal to communicate. How difficult a condition is this to diagnose, and when do patients generally get diagnosed? Well, it's, it is difficult to diagnose. It's been misdiagnosed in many, to many other uh, syndromes. Um, and it's basically because many of these genetic disorders, um, 15, 20 years ago, there was no genetic linkage. And they sort of got lumped into large buckets. But in the last uh, decade, decade and a half, through essentially the work of the Human Genome Project and our ability to look at many different genes and to do complex uh, family analysis, the genes responsible for many of these rare disorders are coming to light. So um, 20 years ago, it, it, there were many, many children with developmental disabilities got put into a single bucket. Um, and but today we essentially can can take that take them out of that bucket and get it split up to to appropriate buckets, if you will. So it is hard to diagnose. It is a clinical diagnosis diagnosis as opposed to a genetic diagnosis because there are girls who have mutations in MECP2 that don't have Rett syndrome, and that's because the genetics is complicated. It's not just having a mutation. 
but it's also because it's on the X chromosome, each X um, is, is um, a normal X and a mutant X is expressed essentially by, by chance. And so you could have more normal Xs in cells being expressed than mutant Xs, and that girl could, be, could appear more normal than, than essentially with the disorder. So it is a hard diagnosis to make. Pediatricians oftentimes fail to make the diagnosis, and it's usually the referral to a specialty clinic, like a, 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 a developmental genetic um, a pediatrician who actually makes a diagnosis. And how is the condition treated today? Uh, the, the symptoms are treated today. So many of these girls have GI tract abnormalities, so they treat the symptoms of the GI tract abnormalities. Many of the girls have seizures, so they get treated with medicines that actually uh, help with seizures. But none of the treatments that are out there actually are treatments that are directed at the biology of Rett syndrome, at the, the consequence of a mutation in MECP2. So there's no treatments out there today that actually try to correct any biology and if you can correct the biology, then maybe the neurology and the other um, systems, whether it's a GI system or heart or bone, um, they might be able to correct themselves. So there are no what I would call biology-directed treatments today. There's only symptom-directed treatments today. And they help with uh, essentially providing care to the girl but they don't correct the disease at, at the fundamental level of the, of the gene or the cell. RettSyndrome.org has made substantial investments in research and development. How is the organization funded? Well, the organization is, is, is funded through grassroots efforts by all of the hardworking families who are associated with Rett Syndrome. Um, it's, if you will, it's a penny at a time. It's, it's families um, uh, running races, strollathons, small banquets, galas, golf tournaments, fly fishing tournaments, to essentially raise money to essentially help us understand and do research, both discovery-based research and translational research and, and basic clinical research to actually change the um, the path of, of Rett syndrome uh, going forward. Of the last count I saw had you investing about $40 million in, in research. How do you go about putting together a research agenda, prioritizing where to invest, and, and how do you both spread your investment while still concentrating it enough to have an impact? That's a, that's a very good question. It's, uh, today it's closer to $48 million. I just want to make sure that you know that. Um, but, but that's over, you know, almost two decades of families raising this money. And um, the, the priorities are actually set not just by the science team at RettSyndrome.org, but essentially through meetings with science advisors, clinicians, scientists around the world, getting together and talking about what needs to be done when it needs to be done, and what are the biggest gaps that need to be filled. So we use essentially the co collective intellect of science, scientists and families to try to fill the gaps. Um, 
So because of that, I feel we have a very balanced portfolio of basic discovery research, but also clinically related research that could actually change the quality of the life of a girl, woman, boy with Rett syndrome today as opposed to a decade from now. Well, the organization has been an important source of funding for trofinitide. What is trofinitide and what does it do? Uh, very good question. Trofinitide is essentially the working end of uh, insulin-like growth factor. It's just three amino acids, and the folks who actually discovered this tripeptide and its power, um, the, the intellectual property of it, um, and the folks at, at Neuron Pharmaceuticals actually changed the bonds of those three amino acids um, so that it could be essentially given orally. Uh, if you gave three amino acids orally, um, it would be quickly digested, um, and those bonds would be broken up. But the folks at Neuron actually changed them chemically so that you could pass from the gut into the bloodstream, and being a small molecule, it could pass from the bloodstream to the brain where it would have a major effect uh, in stimulating something called uh, brain-derived neuro, uh, neurotropic factor, which helps the brain, helps the cells in the brain grow and form synapses. And um, uh, Rett syndrome is really a synaptic disorder. So trophinotide uh, is a small molecule that can help grow and maintain synapses, and at the same time, it helps um, stabilize cells that are important in pruning those synapses, called microglial cells. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's a wonderful uh, small molecule to help enhance growth in the CNS. And how did the organization become involved with Neuron and, and this, this molecule? Um, this is a long story, um, and I hope you don't mind me being a bit long-winded about it, and this is something... It's a story that should be above the fold in the Washington Post. Um, Newman had, a, had this drug, and it was called NNZ2566, and it was, in, it was being developed um, uh, in conjunction with the Department of Defense and for traumatic brain injury. Uh, at the time, I worked for the Department of Defense, and I was uh, on an oversight committee called Combat Casualty Care, and I was... Um, I was on the review committee for NNZ2566 and was very impressed with the, with the work that was com coming out of Frank Tortello's lab, who was doing a lot of the work with it. Um, when I moved to uh, the International Rest Syndrome Foundation and I was brushing up on the pathology of Rett Syndrome, I connected um, with uh, Larry Glass, the, science, the chief science officer of Nolan, and, said, and I, I said to Larry, I think 2566 will work in Rett syndrome. And Larry, being a very forward thinker, actually said, Steve, I've thought the same thing. Um, and we got together. Um, I, we invited Larry to an, a, a World Congress on Rett syndrome, and uh, Larry announced at that World Congress that uh, they were going to get into the rare disease business um, with 2566 in Rett syndrome. Uh, and that's how we really uh, became uh, involved with Nurin uh, because Larry and I had a previous 
uh, knowledge of one another when uh, we were both working hard um, at trying at, at essentially developing 2566 for traumatic brain injury uh, for uh, the active duty soldiers who were being um, who were uh, um, acquiring head injury in um, OEF and OIF. So a, a lot of this happens to just be good fortune with your own career path. Yeah, Larry and I crossed at the right time. What was the organization's financial support? Was it in the form of a grant, or did it actually invest in equity? Oh, no, we don't invest in equity. Uh, it was in the form of a grant, and the grant, um, uh, um, Nurin got in touch with the, the largest RET clinic in the country, and that's at the Baylor College of Medicine. And in conjunction with Dan Glaze, they wrote a, a proposal to do a phase one clinical trial, I'm sorry, a phase 2A clinical trial uh, in adult women with Rett syndrome with NNZ 2566. And, um, and so we made a, a, an award to them on the tune of $600,000. Now, that's not a lot of money in the clinical trials world, but it was enough to get Dan uh, and Nuren started and once that got started, they expanded that trial not only to be at Baylor, but to be at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, as well as the um, Gillette Clinic up in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. So it ended up going from a single-site trial to a to a three-site multi-multi-site trial, um, and with very good results in, a, in adult women. women and more importantly, it was only given for a very short period of time. And um, the real power of this drug, uh, and its name has since changed from NNZ2566 to trufinitide, is that um, the longer it's given, probably the more uh, correction that you'll see. So even in that very first trial where it was only given for a 28-day period, we saw improvement, which was very uh, encouraging. Results from a phase two study were recently published in the journal Neurology. What do they tell us about the safety and efficacy of the drug? So trofinitide actually, so that was the second phase two trial, and that was um, done in a pediatric population, and it was a larger trial, and it was done for a longer period of time, which is, you know, what we all had wanted to do. Um, and so the, a phase two trial is focuses on safety and tolerance. So that's the primary uh, outcome that you're looking for. And it proved to be very safe and very toler tolerable, uh, even at high doses. So that was encouraging. Uh, secondary outcome measures were actually efficacy, and it improved many measures uh, in the in in the girls. Everything from seizures to anxiety to ability for their hand stereopathies to be quieted down. So those are all things that change the quality of life of a person with Rett syndrome. The, the, the real challenge is that what will happen when you actually give the drug for a prolonged period of time? And that's what the next trial will, will, will actually undertake. And the primary outcome measure in the next trial will, in fact, be efficacy. So uh, it's that's this is the, this next trial is the trial that is really the trial um, that determines whether this 
clinical trial moves to a prescribable drug for Rett syndrome. And is one of the challenges of this the age of the patients you're able to treat? I, I imagine a drug like this might have much greater potential in, in a child that hasn't had the disease that long. I, I think I, I think that that's a, a natural conclusion, and I think it's probably correct. But I, I also think that it's going to work at any age. Um, so, but the thing that the drug companies will always try to do, and this is very important for listeners, especially listeners who are dealing with rare disorders, the drug companies will always try to get the most stable population of patients that they can get for a trial. So, and by doing that, the drug company is essentially looking for the effect of the drug on a stable population as opposed to taking a very wide swath of the population that vary in their health, and it's hard to tell whether the drug is changing the quality of life of people who might be sicker versus people who might be less sick. So what the drug company will do is focus in on a particular population who have very similar health and see if it has a profound effect on that population. That doesn't mean it won't work for the whole population. It just means that they are trying to control it so that they actually have the best chance to see an outcome. I think that uh, it will work across the populations, but they'll focus on a particular population to see the most, the largest change due to the drug in a single population. Uh, to answer your question, I believe it will work across all ages. It may work best when they're younger because their, their brain is still forming, it's still in development, and so it could work best at that, at that time at that time point. My sense is that Rett syndrome is a very heterogeneous condition. What kind of challenges does that pose for a clinical study, and how does that affect the way a developer thinks about meaningful endpoints, particularly for a trial that is relatively small in, in terms of the number of patients? Well, that's... Um, that is a challenge. Outcome measures in a developmental disorder are, 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 are very challenging, uh, especially when the, the child can't communicate. Uh, they can ask you, ask a child, do you feel better? And, and actually the child can answer that question. So in this case, um, you really left to essentially cl cl clinicians, um, evaluations as well as caregiver evaluations. And so the outcome measures that are being used for this type trial, especially in developmental disorders, essentially look at many different behaviors. And um, whether it's hand movements, whether it's breathing, whether it's heart rate, whether it's seizures. So they're looking at a plethora of, of outcome measures and trying to evaluate, does it move? Uh, to this toward improvement and more importantly is there a change in quality of life for that patient as well as the caregivers and I think 
that until we actually have biomarkers and stable outcome measures that are very easily measured uh, objectively uh, by a wearable device or by some type of monitor, um, we have to essentially use these kind of behavioral measures uh, and, until something else develops. This is one of the major challenges for developmental disorders at this point in time. A phase three study is planned for the second half of 2019. What do you know about what that study will look like? Um, we, we know quite a bit, but uh, I, uh, I can't talk about it because it's not mine to talk about. Um, the company has been working on the, on the actual trial for some time, uh, and uh, they will publish what the trial, um, what the inclusion criteria are, what the exclusion criteria are, what they'll be monitoring um, as they become available, um, as, they, as they can release that uh, to the public. So that's really on Acadia and Neuron's shoulders to release. I, I can't really talk about it at this point in time. Um, but what I, I can tell you is that one of the challenges to do this study is the actual manufacturing of enough trophinotide to cover daily administration for upward of 180 girls for over six months to 12 months time. And we're literally talking about generating more than a ton of this stuff. So, you know, one of the big hurdles in front of them is manufacturing enough product to have it on hand before the study starts so that they can finish the study without having to make a new stock uh, of trophinotype. So they're working, um, you know, overtime right now to generate enough trophinotype to start the study uh, in the second half of 19. You mentioned Acadia. We should note that Acadia entered into an agreement for the North American rights to the drug. Has that changed your organization's involvement in any way? No, none whatsoever. Um, the the Neuron team still involved. Acadia has uh, turned out to be a wonderful partner. Um, at this point in time, we aren't investing uh, any more money. The drug companies look at our investment at this point as pittance. Um, this, this is a very expensive trial. Um, and I'll leave it for our, our Acadia to actually tell you how much a trial like this will cost. But our involvement is our relationship with the natural history study sites, which there are 15 throughout the country, and engaging the families that are associated with those natural history study sites as Acadia and Neuron actually choose which of those 15 sites will actually participate in this multi-site clinical trial. So we're still involved heavily. Uh, what are patients looking for? What makes the best clinical trial when it comes to uh, patient involvement? Because remember, it is very difficult to travel with, with children with Rett syndrome as well as adults with Rett syndrome. So uh, how are you going to do this? When are you going to do it? What is easiest for the family? So we work with the, with the companies to essentially help them design a trial that actually is easy for the family, uh, less stressful on the family, 
and actually still meets all the criteria that the drug study, the drug company needs to sit in front of the FDA in a confident way with their data. If all goes well, how soon might this drug be available to Rett syndrome patients? Well, the, 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 it, it, when the trial starts in the second half of, of this year, um, the trial itself, um, the, the girls could be monitored, each girl could be monitored for up to a year. So if they were able to get all the girls, 180 uh, girls with Rett syndrome um, in, uh, engaged within that year, it would be it would take two years to accumulate all the all of the information, and then analyze all the information, and then present the data to the FDA. So if you do that math, um, we're talking about late 2021 uh, or early 2022. And Assuming that all goes well, how big a potential do you think this drug has to change the landscape for Rett syndrome and, and the outlook for patients? So, so this is this is this is one of those questions that is um, oftentimes simplified by people, and I think it's really important to come go back to something I said earlier, Danny. This drug, trofinitide, will help correct biology within Rett syndrome. And the biology it will help correct is setting up new synapses. Having new synapses will set up new neural networks. Networks control everything you or I do. And Danny, if I asked you, if I gave you a violin and said, Please accomplish um, learning the violin. And how long do you think it would take you to learn how to play a concerto? And if you practiced every day and worked at it very hard every day, you might be able to play a concerto in about five years. And that's because you have to train all of your neural networks to essentially understand how to read music, how to place your fingers on the string, how to use your right hand as a bowing hand. So it's a complex set of neurologic networks. Now, trofinitide sets up synapses and neural networks. What the individual does with those neural networks will all depend on the kind of physical therapy, occupational therapy, cognitive therapy, speech therapy, that a girl gets subsequent to this treatment with trofinitide. Now, some things will come naturally, but you know as well as I do, complex motor skills take training and training and training. So what trofinitide does is it helps give a license to essentially acquire gain of function. It's just a license. Now you have to train, essentially, and learn how to drive, essentially, to essentially develop that gain of function that everybody wants to talk about. So it doesn't matter what kind of pharmacologic um, 
input one comes up with for Rett syndrome, whether it's trophinotide or gene therapy or something else, that's step one. Step two is essentially what you do after that, and that is step one corrects biology, step two essentially retrains neurologic networks for gain of function. And that's a hard, active process. And people who've ever dealt with somebody who's actually had a stroke understand how hard that process is. It's commitment and it's consistency in delivering physical therapy, occupational therapy, cognitive therapy, speech therapy daily to gain those functions. So trophinotide essentially sets the field. What you do with that field then depends on you as an individual who's a caregiver on making sure that those neural networks are set up and are used and used and used to really gain function. And that's the crux of this. Trophinotide will essentially allow neural networks to be formed, and then you have to train those neural networks. It can't train the neural networks. Only you can train those neural networks. Steve Kaminsky, Chief Science Officer of RettSyndrome.org. Steve, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to GlobalGenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit RareDaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.